God, as Dan prayed just moments ago, we truly want to see you today. Lord, we want to see you for who you actually are, and we do confess that our view of you is often tainted by our own sin. And so, Lord, would you use your spirit and your word, Lord, in the next few moments to reveal your greatness and your glory and your majesty, because, Lord, that is how we are transformed, by seeing you, not ourselves. And so, Lord, would you help us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we open this morning, I want us to play a little game together, if you will. I'm going to read a couple of statements, and I want you to try to identify the common theme in each of these statements. Here's number one. When I bought this Ferrari, no one warned me I'd get pulled over all of the time. Statement number two. I have so much to do, so much serving. I was asked to cook the meal for Thanksgiving again because everyone loves my cooking. Number three, my eyes are so sore. I think it's because I spent three hours this morning reading the Bible. Number four, the guy who rents my apartment lost his job, so I told him not to worry about his rent this month. I'm just trying to pay it forward. Number five, you wrote this on social media. I'm humbled that my book hit the New York uh, bestseller list recently. Did you catch the theme in each of these statements? Each of these statements is a form of what has been called a humble brag. A humble brag is a statement that really pretends to be modest, and yet it's a statement that draws attention to the self, draws attention to how important you are, to your successes, to your accomplishments. It's really bragging that's dressed up as meekness. It's a thin veneer of humility placed over a clear expression of pride, and it is false humility. I think it's important to understand that there is a category called false humility. I know a couple weeks ago as we began Daniel 4, we looked at the destructive trap of pride, and I want to remind us today that the challenge is not only to avoid pride, but to make sure that we are pursuing the right kind of humility, true humility, biblical humility, not false humility, not these nuanced expressions of humble bragging. In fact, two weeks ago, as we looked at uh, part one of Daniel chapter four, we noticed the spiritual litmus test, not only for King Nebuchadnezzar, but this spiritual litmus test is something that each and every one of us experience The spiritual litmus test reveals whether or not you are living surrendered to God. And that spiritual litmus test comes down to what you do with your pride. It's not, do you have pride or not? We all have pride. But it's what you do with it. It's identifying where is it in your life and how much of it do you actually have. And what we do with it reveals where we are with God defined pride a couple weeks ago as an apparent or subtle self-absorption that focuses on self-exaltation and self-recognition that's driven with a desire to control and use all things for the advancement of self. Notice the key there. It's a preoccupation with the self. Pride is a state of the mind or a condition of the heart which a person has supplanted the rule of God over his life with the rule of his own will. Okay, so instead of living a life dependent upon God, a prideful person now becomes the authority for determining what is right 
and how they ought to live. And it is destructive. Two weeks ago, we looked at four reasons why pride is destructive. Number one, we looked at how pride manifests itself in different ways. It's not just exalting the self, but can also express itself in self-pity or being self-defensive. We also looked at how pride is something that God opposes. So God stands in opposition to those who are proud. We looked at how pride is the taproot for all other sin. It's the soil by which sin, uh, sin grows in our lives. And then fourthly, we looked at how pride blinds the heart from what it needs to see the most. And two weeks ago, I just had a very simple goal that we would just see the pride in our lives because we can't confess it, we can't repent of it if we don't see it. And so today, before we jump into our passage this morning, again, I think there's another warning as we go down the path of humility, and that is to confuse humility with false humility, this form of a, of a humble brag that's not just in our statements, but it's even how we live our lives and how we think about ourselves. It's really just another manifestation of pride. And so I want to kind of break down these three uh, kind of different categories of pride and humility and false humility, because I think that this is a danger for us when we start thinking about cultivating humility in our lives. I'm going to not talk about pride here for a moment because we spent two weeks talking about that. I want you to notice false humility for, for a moment. False humility tends to be very self-defeating. Okay, false humility, this is someone who really can't take a compliment. You ever notice that? And, and I think it is difficult to take a, call, a compliment. When someone, you know, affirms you with something, our knee jerk is to think, oh, no, no, I don't, I don't want to be prideful. And so sometimes we fall into the trap of being uh, not truthful, where they compliment, you know, your, your cooking or your services. Oh, no, 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 that, that meal wasn't that good. And now you just lied <laughs> because it probably was a good meal. And so someone who has false humility struggles to take compliments. They're even excessively modest. They're self-focused on their inadequacies or weaknesses. They tend to be people pleasers or insecure. They, they, they're fearful of correction. When you compare that to true humility, which is what we'll be focused on today, someone who's truly humble is just self, they don't focus on themselves. And we'll unpack that more in a moment. They praise God for compliments, but they also receive it. They've got a balanced view of uh, the self. They're self-giving, self-sacrificial. They're servant-hearted. They're teachable. They, they want to receive feedback in order to grow. I think this is helpful here because we must avoid also the danger of false humility. Tim Keller talks about true humility as not thinking less of yourself, not degrading yourself, but just thinking of yourself less. That's humility. That's the pathway. And humility is really important. In fact, I don't know if you know this, but humility is the second most frequently taught trait in the New Testament. It's second only to love. And I think the reason for that is because humility is the soil by which the fruit of the Spirit grows and develops. Humility in action, I think, is best demonstrated in each of the Beatitudes. I think humility is what removes this pride-sealed lid in our hearts so we can actually receive grace from God. And look, without humility, we cannot know God. And so as we finish Daniel 4, and as we say goodbye to King Nebuchadnezzar, he's moving off the scene here, we are going to see the Lord do a powerful work 
in this prideful pagan king that's centered on humility. So three traits, three qualities of true humility as we look at the rest of Daniel 4. Here's the first one I want to point out is that a humble heart submits to God's mighty hand. Verses 28 through 33, as we pick up where we left off two weeks ago, we notice that God is humbling the prideful Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 28 says that everything in the dream that King Nebuchadnezzar had is now unfolding before him. That verse 29 tells us, though it wasn't immediate, that there was a full year that passed, 12 months from when he was dreaming this dream, and Daniel warned him by giving him the right interpretation to God actually giving him the consequences for his pride. So 12 months of King Nebuchadnezzar maybe wondering, yeah, maybe that dream wasn't true, or maybe my pride isn't that big of a deal. Maybe I'm going to get away with this. He went 12 months, and then verse 30 tells us that as Nebuchadnezzar is taking a stroll on the roof of his palace, he's looking out and presumably looking down at his greatness, at everything that he's accomplished, and he says, and he says, this statement, is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. That one statement has three different references to himself. Clear expression of pride. I have built my power, my majesty, me, me, me. Verse 31, as these words are coming out of his mouth, God declares that his kingdom will be snatched from his hand, that he'll be driven away from man. He'll be now dwelling with uh, animals. He's driven away from his kingdom, his throne. He will now survive on vegetation like an ox, that his outward appearance is so disheveled that he appears to be like an animal. Nebuchadnezzar is becoming animalistic here. His outward appearance is affected, but only in ways that would be true of any of us if our mind was changed to that of an animal and we started living with animals for years. This is what the dream was pointing to. The, the chopping down of the tree was a, a symbolic description of this moment of King Nebuchadnezzar losing his kingdom, losing his, his power and his glory, and now living among the animals. Verse 16 describes it this way. It says, let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him. Look, since pride captured Nebuchadnezzar's mind, God now gives him a new one. So like the external change in his body is just reflecting the internal reality of what happened in his heart, that Nebuchadnezzar's pride made him subhuman, so God is driving him out from among men in order to humble him. God is humbling this prideful king. Nebuchadnezzar had resisted this up until this moment, as now he's starting to maybe connect the dots. Look, I know for some of us, and this is what I felt, as I'm studying this passage and, and seeing the consequences of pride here, thinking to myself, I don't want that. I don't want my mind to be changed like an animal. We looked at the four destructive traps of pride two weeks ago. God opposes the proud. I don't want that. I don't want to be blinded to my spiritual condition. I don't want pride to produce all these other sins in my life. So naturally, and in a good way, we can ask the question, what do I need to do? How can I 
cultivate humility. Like, give me the to-do list. Give me the instructions. Give me the teaching on how I can cultivate humility. And I'm sure you're wondering that. And I want to affirm that's a good desire, but also there's a warning in that question. As David Mathis puts it in his book, Humbled, Welcoming the Uncomfortable Work of God, that question actually elevates us way too much. It focuses on the self, which is exactly what pride wants. See, yes, to humble ourselves is a directive. It's a command in the Bible. We need to understand that we cannot humble ourselves by our own bootstraps. He he writes this in his book. This is kind of a long quote, but it's a good one. He says, the reason for this is because we humans are not the drivers of our own humility. Our God designs the humbling way in which he forges the virtue of humility, that he takes the initiative, he acts first, that our humility actually happens on his terms. He sees, he knows, he moves with sovereign, omnipotent, meticulous care. He is the one who humbles us with his mighty hand. And when his humbling hand descends and we're cut to our knees or flat on the ground, then the question comes to us. Will you humble yourself and embrace God's humbling hand? Or will you try to fight back? Will you receive his humbling providences or attempt to explain them away? Will you soften to him in humility or harden with pride? True self-humbling is not our initiative, but it does require our doing as we learn to welcome the uncomfortable work of God. Look, what we need to understand is that out of love and care, God is relentlessly trying to humble his people all of the time. And he does it in many different ways. Very rarely will he change your mind to that of an animal, but he does this in different mechanisms, different means. The challenge is, are you welcoming that? Are you submitting to his mighty hand? Are you surrendering and humbling yourself as he is humbling you? See, for King Nebuchadnezzar, The passage says it took seven periods of time living like an animal, most likely referring to seven years until he submitted. And then he did. And what we'll notice in in a moment is that God restored him. But imagine for a moment if he did not. Imagine for a moment if Nebuchadnezzar just continued in this condition for the rest of his life as an animal. And that's how his story ends. Imagine if he just resisted time and time again God's humbling act, clearly God intervening and trying to save him from himself. Imagine if he resisted that. Look, the reality is is that some of us here this morning, you don't need to imagine all that much. That you may not have been changed into an animal, but you know exactly what it's like to resist the humbling hand of God of God. That perhaps you're here today and and you are resisting this act of God humbling you. That perhaps God has brought painful circumstances in your life and he's trying to show you your pride. He's trying to humble you and yet you're resisting it. 
or maybe a, a close friend has been trying to share truth with you and, and you're ignoring it, you're resisting it. Or maybe God is using the Spirit of God and the Word of God in your life to help you see the pride, help you to own it and confess it and repent of it and throw yourself on the grace of God and yet you are resisting that. Clear signs of that would be making excuses for your sin, blame shifting, justifying your sin, ignoring it. And yet the reality is everybody else in your life sees the pride. Everybody else in your life sees the sin, and yet you don't. Look, if that's you this morning, you need to hear some hard, direct truth today. This is out of love, but you need to understand that if that is you, if you are resisting God's humbling hand in your life, you are in a far more dangerous place spiritually than you could ever imagine. The reality is, is that it is very possible to be in a position where you so consistently resist God's humbling hand to the point where your heart begins to develop this type of callousness that's so hard that you are beyond saving. And it's not because it's possible to outsin God's grace, but it is possible to develop such a pride-coded, calloused heart that you are convinced that you don't need his grace. It's as if a, a cancer patient tells the doctor, no, I, I don't need chemotherapy, I'm good. I'm fine. I'll, I'll fight this on my own. And they, they say no to the one thing that can actually cure them. That's what pride does to us towards the grace of God. You think of Pharaoh in, in Exodus re resisting, his heart became hardened towards God and towards Moses. You think of Esau in Hebrews chapter 12 describes his longing for this, but his heart became too hard that he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. And so here's the warning I want to place before you. If you're living in a life where you're blinded by your pride, you're resisting God's humbling act, do not misinterpret God's delayed punishment for his divine acceptance of your pride and your sin. That God waited 12 months to do something about Nebuchadnezzar. He waited a whole year. That God is so patient, wanting Nebuchadnezzar to repent, wanting him to submit to God's humbling hand. But look, don't misinterpret God's delay for God's affirmation of the sin in your life. Don't think you're getting away with it. Maybe like Nebuchadnezzar here, God hates pride. As St. Augustine said in the early church, Father, he says, God has promised forgiveness to your repentance, but he has not promised tomorrow to your procrastination. And so look, friend, do not delay repenting. Do not delay submitting yourself under God's mighty hand. Look, could today be the day? that you finally see your pride, you finally own it and confess it and repent of it and throw yourself upon the grace of God and welcome God's humbling act in your life. It's my prayer for you. And in fact, we, we see this in Nebuchadnezzar's life. In the final verses of chapter four, God 
restores him. We're told that his reason returned to him. The splendor of his kingdom comes back. In fact, he, he has even more greatness. Counselors and lords are seeking after him. What is going on here? Well, this is an Old Testament example of 1 Peter 5, 6, which says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. That's what we're seeing here. The reason is Nebuchadnezzar started to accept and welcome and submit himself to God's humbling hand. And look, by doing so, we see actually two more clear qualities of true humility in verses 34 through 37. Here's the the second quality that we see in verse 34. A humble heart acknowledges their need for God. This is huge. Verse 34, I think, is the key moment for Nebuchadnezzar where the text says that he lifts his eyes up to heaven. This reminds us of so many passages in Scripture of lifting the eyes upward as a profound moment of surrender and acknowledgement that God is God and you are not. Psalm 123, verse 1, to you I lift up my eyes. You are the one who is enthroned in the heavens. Right? This is intentionally looking away from the self, which is what pride wants, wants you to focus on you, and it's intentionally looking up at God. This is a, a wordless gesture, but it is a demonstration of humility. This act is reflecting the posture of the heart. In other words, because you want God, need God, you're dependent upon God, you look up at him. Nebuchadnezzar's experience of living as a beast, it changed his perspective toward God. He went from maybe believing in the existence of God to now being desperate for God, having a correct view of God. He can no longer ignore God, no longer rest smug on his own self-confidence. He has been humbled He's dependent upon God. He needs God, and he's looking up at him. This is in direct contrast to verse 30. Or verse 30, he's looking out and down at his empire, at his kingdom. No longer. He's looking up at God because he needs God. Andrew Murray describes humility this way. Humility is the only soil in which the grace is root. Humility is not so much a grace or virtue along with others. It is the root of all because it alone takes the right attitude before God and allows him as God to do all. Humility is simply the disposition which prepares the soul for living on trust. It is the place of entire dependence on God, the displacement of self by the enthronement of God. Love that. I think what's so powerful about this quality of humility, this act of looking up at God, is that it actually draws the gaze of God toward you. Like James 4, 6, a a verse that we looked at two weeks ago, where it says God opposes the proud. I emphasize that God doesn't just ignore the proud or keep distance, but he actually stands in opposition to the proud. It's a terrifying position to be in. But the rest of the verse says, but he gives grace to the humble. 
that those who humble themselves under God's mighty hand and looks up at God in need and desperation for him draws the gaze of God toward him. Or you can think about it like humility is like this spiritual bucket in our hearts that can finally catch and experience the water flow of God's grace. Like God's always pouring grace upon his people, but it's humility that can actually receive it and catch it and experience it. Or, or think about it this way, that humility opens the, the pride-sealed lid in our hearts so we can experience his grace. Humility is so important as we acknowledge our neediness before God. But then a third quality here is that a humble heart is enthralled with God's greatness. All right, so it's not only submitting to God's mighty hand, it's not only acknowledging your neediness, but now it's also filling your heart with how great and glorious and majestic God is in order to shrink yourself. Remember how pride likes to kind of inflate our view of ourselves, puff us up, right? It's worship of God that deflates the self and overwhelms the heart with our infinitely and eternally glorious God. I think you can see this in King Nebuchadnezzar's life here. Notice what he proclaims about God. These are not humble brags. Notice what he says about the Lord. He says, His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. That God does according to his sovereign will. That all his works are right and his ways are just. He is able to humble those who walk in pride. And what's happening here? Nebuchadnezzar's pride gave way to praise. That's what's happening through the work of God, that he's finally, finally getting out of the way so that God could be the focus and God could be the center. That's what worship does. Worship kicks the self off the throne in our hearts and puts God where he rightfully belongs. And as humility is lived out in our relationship with God, it's lived out in the absence of self, the shrinking of self, and the, the act of being captivated with God's greatness. This is, this is huge. Uh, Tim Keller, in his really helpful book called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, provides a, a summary of humility this way. He says that true gospel humility means I stop connecting every experience every conversation with myself. In fact, I stop thinking about myself. This is the freedom of self-forgetfulness, the blessed rest that only self-forgetfulness brings. A truly gospel-humble person is not a self-hating person or a self-loving person, but a gospel-humble person. The essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It is thinking of myself less. That's good. That's freeing. That, that provides the right pathway towards humility. And it's important because that only happens when we see the greatness of God, right? Remember, pride at the root is the self contending with God for preeminence. Pride, you could think about it this way, pride confuses our identity with God's. It makes us a lot larger than what we truly are. And yet, being enthralled with God's greatness, what that does is it allows us to be consumed with God's glory 
so that we're no longer worrying about our own. Like when our eyes are fixed on God as the source for goodness and beauty and truth, we're convinced that we're not. Like when we're enamored with God's eternal worth, we are no longer enamored with ourselves. One example of this in the New Testament, which this is one of my favorite characters in the Bible, John the Baptist. John the Baptist in John chapter 3 is unbelievable because his ministry is growing and he's preaching with power, he's preaching about repentance, he's baptizing all these people, and the religious leaders have no idea what to do with him. They're kind of sensing, man, we're losing power because of this guy here. What's going on here? We need to control the narrative. So they go up to him and they say, who are you? Which, if you're proud, you love that question. Oh man, this is an opportunity to, you know, to, to have the focus and the attention be on me. And they ask him, are you the Christ? Are you the, the promised Messiah? And he says, no, I'm not. I say, okay, well, are you Elijah? You're acting like Elijah. And he says, no, I'm not. He's like, man, John, you, you got to work with us. Like, we, we need some explanation for the diet, for your, your fashion, your clothing, for your ministry here. We got we to do something with you. Are you the prophet? And he says, no, I'm not. His response here is that he says, I'm the voice in the wilderness pointing to the true Messiah, Jesus Christ. And then he says this, which is the best summary of humility. He says, John 3, verse 30, I must decrease, but he, Jesus, must increase. That's humility. Living with that type of mentality, less of me, more of God. And you get to this place when you understand who God is. That, that, that's what John the Baptist demonstrates for us. The, the better you know who God is, the better you know who you, yourself is. The more accurate view you have of God, the more you understand this cosmic gap between this holy, great God and how sinful and needy we actually are. And we need that gap. We need to feel and experience and to be reminded of that cosmic gap because the more you're reminded of that, the more humility grows. And then praise follows. This is what happened in Daniel 4. This is what happened in the life and the heart of a pagan king. He saw and experienced that gap of how great God is and how little he truly is. As I close this morning, I, I do wonder if some are here today and maybe in your own words, you would say that you feel distant from God. Maybe the way if I asked you, hey, how are you doing with the Lord? Maybe you would say, you know what? I actually kind of feel forgotten by God. And maybe that's true because Perhaps you're knee-deep in sin right now. Perhaps you're just going through the motions spiritually, and so as a result, you feel like God is just done with you. You just feel like God has, has turned his back on you, and there's all this distance with him, and you feel forgotten. Look, can I encourage you this morning? Can I remind you that if Daniel 4 teaches us anything, it teaches us that God does not give up on sinners. If Daniel 4 shows us anything as we see God not giving up on this 
pagan, prideful king, God will not give up on you. I don't know who needs to be reminded of that today. I know someone does, that God has not forgotten about you. But here's the reality. You either humble yourself by submitting to God's mighty hand, or he will humble you, whether in this life or for all of eternity. And you don't want to be humbled for all of eternity of being eternally separated from God in hell forever and ever. And so this may sound harsh, but the most loving thing God could do is to humble you right now in this life. For you to see your pride, confess it, and repent of it. The most loving thing God could have done in Nebuchadnezzar was to change his mind to that of an animal because that was the tool in God's hand that he used to humble a proud heart. Look, God will use anything and everything in order to humble his people. Think about the whale story of Jonah. You think about the pigsty and the prodigal son. Question for you is, what is God using in your life right now to try to humble you? And then the follow-up is, are you accepting, welcoming, and submitting to his mighty hand? I also want to remind us that Yes, God will not give up on you, but it's not because you're great. It's because of Jesus. The reason why God will not give up on you is because King Jesus humbled himself. As humiliating as it was for King Nebuchadnezzar, Jesus was even more so. Think about it. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, greatest empire known to man at that point, is changed into an animal. Think about Jesus. Think about King Jesus, the eternal Son of God, steps out from the glory and the comfort of heaven, comes down, puts on flesh and blood, and he lives like a servant. That he submits himself to the human experience of fatigue and hunger and thirst and relational strength, and yet was without sin. But the best display of humility in his life is not just the fact that he lived as a servant, but that the Son of God actually died. And he didn't just die any kind of death. The Son of God died the death of a criminal, even though he was innocent, even though he was perfect, even though he was righteous. He died on a Roman cross as a criminal. Why? Because he was dying for you. You were that criminal. You were that person who committed cosmic treason against a holy God. And yet Jesus humbled himself, took your place, paid for your sin, not just to display God's glory, not just to show us how much he loves us, not just to to save us from our sin, but he did it to showcase the greatest display of humility the world will ever know. And that's so helpful for us, that Jesus shows us what true humility looks like because all acts of humility must begin with death. Every act of humility begins with dying to self. So as we close, if the Son of God 
died for his enemies, died for sinners, then by God's grace, you and I, we can die to our own pride. We can submit ourselves to God's mighty hand, acknowledging our need for him and filling our heart with his greatness. That's the path to humility. Let's pray together. God, we give you praise and thanks for Jesus. We thank you that Jesus did not leave us to ourselves, but that he came. He took our place on the cross. God, we were unable to save ourselves. We were, as Dan prayed this morning, sheep who have gone astray. Thank you for being the good shepherd who hunts us down, leaves the 99, pursues the one, and that you save us and redeem us. God, we are so lost in our pride. God, it blinds us from our own neediness of you. So God, I pray that you, in your own divine intervening work, would humble us and never stop humbling us. Use anything and everything to that end, we pray for the glory of Jesus. In his name I pray, amen.